0: And before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. And if you want to learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, then please visit Facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Do you want to use your skills to serve movements for social justice? Join a unique team of designers and developers who are also activists, organizers, cultural workers, artists, and musicians, and become a part of their fast-paced, mission-driven shop. Design Action Collective, a worker-owned design and communication studio in downtown Oakland, California, is seeking applicants for the following positions, web developer, web designer, information architect, and project manager. They're committed to providing high quality visual communications tools to progressive, nonprofit, and grassroots activist organizations, and they're majority non cis male and people of color owned. For more information, visit their site at designation.org. That's D E I S I G N A T I O N.org. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with UX designer and design educator Erica Lewis. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do.
1: I am Erica Lewis. I'm a senior UX designer at a company called Ad Hoc. Uh, It's a government agency. And then I also am an adjunct professor for the School of Art at the University of Arkansas.
0: Nice. Talk to me a little bit about the work you do um, as a UX designer at Ad Hoc.
1: Sure. So this is a new role for me. I've been there um, just a little over uh, maybe a month and a half at this point. Um, but I'm my focus right now is on making sure veterans have access to all of the benefits that they can receive from the federal government. Right now, a lot of that information is spread across the internet and there are a lot of predatory companies that will charge veterans to learn about that access. And so um, it's it's part of my job to understand, what those avenues are and consolidating them in one place so that they are easy access, especially for those who might not have the ability uh, physically or, you know, mentally or emotionally to um, to to take up the space to, to go out and look for it. So it's, it's really rewarding work, definitely difficult at times, but uh, I, I kind of like that it's difficult because it creates an empathy and awareness within me that I wasn't fully aware of before I started.
0: That's not even something I... I consider when i think about like ux roles as it relates to to veterans that's an Mm -hmm. interesting thing what's a what's kind of a regular day like for you
1: oh a regular day um it it depends so we let me think about that i would say that it normally starts out with me researching and understanding veteran behaviors on the internet, because what we're doing on VA.gov is a lot of consolidation of a lot of other sites. It's a lot of research on my part to go out and figure out what all is there. And it's a lot of actually talking to veterans, which is a really, really cool thing for me, having come from an enterprise background previously, to actually be able to talk directly to the folks that are using uh, the product. So, A lot of researching, a lot of talking with them to understand how to put that um, stuff together. And then luckily, um, VA has a really extensive design system, and it's public. um, All of the VA uh, repos on GitHub are public as well. So just really cool stuff to learn about in that aspect of research. Um, and then just putting it all together and uh, testing, we work obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, but we work in two week sprint cycles. So each sprint is a little bit different. But for the most part, there's that research and validation with veterans or some format like that each sprint.
0: What does veteran behavior look like online? I'm curious, like as as much of that as you can sort of dive into, I'm curious about,
1: yeah. It's, it's actually interesting. And I don't know if it's because of the military training, but veterans are really, really efficient. They want to get in and out. So they will oftentimes find a lot of really strange workarounds or shortcuts on websites. And so hmm. a lot of my work is me understanding like, okay, this isn't the flow that I would have assumed but would be the way that you would, you know, do this Thing, but they're just very, very efficient in the way that they use the internet. No matter really what age they are, they will find what they're looking for, no matter how. So uh, that's been really interesting for sure.
0: What would you say has kind of been the the biggest challenge so far with this role? Because you're you're fairly new there, right?
1: Yes. Um, so. The biggest challenge for me, especially being new, is just understanding how to talk to people who have seen a lot more than I will probably have ever seen in my life. Um, and it's really tough sometimes, but really worthwhile. Um, and so I wouldn't say design specifically, it's challenging, but more so personally and um, in line with kind of the empathetic thinking that comes with design. Uh, it, it, it can be challenging for sure.
0: I remember this was A while ago, I met someone who, uh, he had a podcast where he would interview basically elderly people. He would interview people, I think maybe like 60 and up or 70 and up. It was called The Greatest Generation, I believe. And I remember he mentioned sort of a similar thing with, uh, with talking with them. It's like, how do you ask questions to someone who has like experienced so much in life? So Mm -hmm. you don't come off like sounding, Stupid or or mm-hmm. ill informed or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the veterans are pretty like amicable though?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think especially because it's I'm working on something that will br- honestly make their lives a lot easier. They're more than willing to talk and be open and honest about it. So um, oftentimes they're thanking me for even you know talking with them about this thing that they didn't really consider a human being behind. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's nice and personally pretty rewarding.
0: Nice. Now, earlier this year you were at RevUnit, which is, I think that's where I first heard about you. What was that experience like?
1: Yeah. So I was at RevUnit for, um, like maybe three and a half years or so. Um, I think that's right. And they focus primarily on enterprise applications and products. Um, and so, a lot of what I was doing was for large um, companies like Walmart, Zappos, um, H-E-B, if you're Texan, and some others. And so it was a lot of working with data, um, data visualization, and large numbers of people using um, really targeted and focused products. For example, I worked on um, a note-taking app for employees of Walmart, so they can basically do their work a little bit quicker and easier, and it's digitized versus having to write them in notepads like they were doing before. Mm -hmm. Um, And it impacted, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So the scale of work was definitely uh, quite large at RevUnit. Wow. Wow.
0: Now you're in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We talked about that a little bit before we mm-hmm. before we started recording. Is that where you grew up to?
1: Yeah. Um. So I moved to Fayetteville when I was eight. I want to say seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um. My family is from lower, like southeastern Arkansas, Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Uh. And my mom actually moved here to go to law school. Um. So I've been here for almost twenty years. Wow.
0: Was design and tech a big part of kind of your your world growing up? Were you exposed to it pretty early?
1: Um, no, <laughs> not at <laughs> all. So um, a lot of my family members are teachers. As I mentioned, my mom is an attorney. So a lot of academia, which I think I'm fortunate in that aspect. And because of that, I think my family members were really exploratory in the way that we were able to learn. So although we didn't talk about design or um, maybe art as a career focus, there was a lot of creativity and problem solving in the way that we, um, I'm saying we, like me and my cousins grew up when we were younger.
0: And I would imagine probably a lot of analysis too.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: How did you first kind of get into UX? Like, how did you know this was something that, you know, you could turn into a career?
1: It's kind of a roundabout way, which I'm sure everybody says, since it's so such a new kind of industry. But I had a traditional, if you will, design job out of college for a couple months. And then I moved into uh, e-commerce. And when I was working in e-commerce, I realized that I was kind of, uh, I didn't know the term at the time, but iterating my designs based on the behavior. So like click through rates and, you know, how much revenue was generated, depending on which ad was being shown and what banners were shown and things like that. And so Pretty early on, I gained an interest in um, how people react, were reacting to the way um, in which I was designing. So I started working on the Daily UI Challenge. I'm sure you've probably heard of that or something very similar. Mm-hmm. And from there, I just decided, you know, I, this is a field of design that I didn't learn about in school. So I, I want to take some more time and learn about it. So I took a junior UI um, job at RevUnit. The, technology agency here, and um, it's in Bentonville, Arkansas, but not too far from me. And it just kind of went on from there. I was doing UI for a while and then realized, oh, user behavior is actually like a thing that I can focus on. So I moved into UX and user experience and understanding how people could navigate through um, the designs that I was creating. And you uh,
0: you went to the University of Arkansas, is that right? Yep. What was their design program like?
1: Um so the design program when I was there was um it was less than fantastic. I don't want to put anybody on blast seeing as how <laughs> I work there now. Um it's changed a lot since I graduated. But when I was there, it they didn't have a graphic design program. It was like a what is it, like a a bachelor of art in visual emphasis and visual design or something, you know, something along those lines. And so really it was a lot of um, like art history classes and painting classes. And then I think I actually took four actual graphic design classes uh, to graduate. So um, it was, I didn't learn a whole lot by way of what I could do with design, but I did learn the principles of design, which I think are, have just still been foundational in, in my career. Hmm. And now
0: as you were there and you were going through the program, do you feel like they were really sort of preparing you for the world out there as a designer in the job market?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I'm fortunate because the instructors that I had, a lot of them had been working, I don't want to say in the real world, but in the real world outside of academia before teaching. And so it was nice to have them give us real world kind of experience. And then they did have a professional development class too, where we would go to different agencies in the area and talk with people and understand like, okay, I went to design school, but I'm actually like a marketing agent now, or I'm actually, you know, I'm the creative director at a tech company now or whatever it might be. So they did expose us to different types of jobs within the creative industry.
0: Okay. Yeah. And just a few years after you graduated, you also teach there. You mentioned before that you are, (laughs) Um, that you're an educator. Mm-hmm. What is that feeling like? I can only imagine like you were just there as a student and now you have students.
1: Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's really bizarre because I guess I can call him my colleague now, but he teaches the same class that I teach, but he was my instructor <laughs> when I was there. Wow. So it's it's definitely interesting to say the least. It also kind of keeps me on my toes because it forces me to be sharp in the things that I've kind of, that, are, that have kind of become second nature. Mm-hmm. I think in order to teach, you really have to to know what you're talking about. I think sometimes it can be muscle memory to just execute work. Um, but to teach people and to have them understand it, I think is a whole other beast that I've gained a great appreciation for educators than I've ever had before.
0: Yeah, and I would even say also the other challenge that comes with that is that the stuff that you're teaching is also sort of constantly changing and shifting. Uh, Can you talk about like some of the courses that you're teaching?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I I teach the UX course. And it's interesting because, like you mentioned, it does kind of change quite often just the, the field in general. And so moving into it, students are used to having this very well laid out design brief or syllabus of the projects that they're going to do from their professor. But in this instance, in this class, I had um, been talking with a developer in the area who had an idea for an app. And I was like, well, you know, I've got this class and we can kind of see what we come up with throughout the course of the semester using kind of the design um, product life cycle as a guide for how we're going to move. Students are definitely not used to that. And I think it's put them in an uncomfortable position, but one of growth and not necessarily something that's undesirable. Mm -hmm. So that's been interesting to see for sure.
0: What's it been like being like a young faculty member? Do you find that students take you seriously or is it the opposite?
1: Um, They're really respectful, um, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just the generation of people, but they're just really, really nice, and and I, I couldn't ask for a better group of students to have It's weird because I don't consider myself that much older than them. I think my students were born in maybe 1999 or 2000. I was born in 1983, but I feel like the generational gap is a little bit different between them. So sometimes I still feel kind of old, but I know that I'm not old. (laughs) Um, I saw one of my students wearing Air Force Ones, and I tried to make a reference about how I still had mine from, like, 2006. And she was just Mm -hmm. like, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) um but for the most part they're really respectful and and um I really enjoy having them
0: are there any challenges that you face from them I mean aside from I guess just the fact that you kind of are are in the same generation sort of but what are you I'm just curious to kind of know about like what current design students are going through because there's so many different choices for them now and there's so Mm -hmm. much information out them for them to get whether it's in the classroom, out the classroom, et cetera?
1: Yeah, these students, so they have classes like human-centered design now, which was something that, it was starting up when I was there, but wasn't as fleshed out as it is now. Obviously, they're still really in illustration and type and things like that too. But it's been really cool to see students have such an interest in research as a design practice and human behavior. And outside of that, they're just really, really talented. Like, they are coming for my wig. I'm surprised. Um, (laughs) There's sophomores and juniors who are doing, you know, incredible, incredible work. And I think they also have this just awareness of social responsibility, um, and they take that into account into their work. For example, we were doing um, user surveys and I think someone put gender as an option on the survey and they were questioning if it was relevant to the survey data and was it going to be relevant in our research. And I was just, it's just those questions that I wouldn't have even thought to ask when I was 19 or 20 um, or whatever age, you know, in, in college, but it's really, really cool to see how they're thinking about environmental and social impact of their work. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah. I just came back from the, the black and design conference, uh, not too long ago. And that was one of the things that they were talking about as they spoke on spaces about carving out sort of these spaces where you can use your design work in a way that can have a social impact uh, in that way. Other than what you've mentioned, are there other things that your students teach you?
1: Um, they have definitely taught me patience <laughs> <laughs> and they've taught me, Kind of how to be clear and direct. Um, I think oftentimes, a lot of us, but I focus um, or I suffer from imposter syndrome quite a bit. And so mm-hmm. they've really taught me how to be confident in the work that I know that I know how to do and how to communicate directly and clearly so that someone who doesn't understand those things can clearly understand them.
0: Nice, nice. Nice. Now you're still, you know, pretty early in your career from what I'm I'm sort of picking up here. Mm-hmm. Have there been any resources or or mentors or anyone that has really helped you out along the way? Any organizations maybe that have helped you out along the way?
1: Yeah, so these are two separate things, but organization-wise, I joined AIGA when I was in college to go to one of their portfolio reviews. And this is before we had a chapter here in Northwest Arkansas, but I joined it, the Kansas City chapter, because it's close, about three hours away from me, to do a student portfolio review. And I just met a lot of just connections and people that had so many different um, backgrounds in design or in tech um, that gave me really valuable feedback or even just advice. And I still have a lot of those connections to this day. And I think through AIGA, I've learned or I've met a lot of different people over the years who've also become mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, one person specifically, she's not a member of AIGA, but her name is Lisa Basket. She started at RevUnit with, um, a little bit after I did, um, but she's like the most amazing designer, researcher I've ever met, ever. Um, and she quickly became a mentor of mine when I was at RevUnit pretty early on in my career there. Um, and she helped mold um, kind of where I wanted to grow and develop. And I've kind of, for a while, I was mirroring how she was working, what she was doing, so that I could kind of become as good (laughs) as her. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I really looked up to her. um, And I still do still talk to her all the time. But I think if she didn't start there, I wouldn't have known as much as I did early on about user research and user experience.
0: What's the design scene like in Fayetteville? I didn't even know that Fayetteville would have had an active, like... AIGA chapter or even AIGA group of people.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because there's always been quite a few really good designers in the Northwest Arkansas area. There just was never a community to bring them all together. So a group of I guess colleagues or friends of mine started the AIGA chapter here in Northwest Arkansas in twenty in the end of twenty sixteen, early twenty seventeen. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of encouraged folks to start coming out um, and engaging as a design group as a whole. Uh, There are a lot of little underground DIY scenes in the area. And so having kind of one meeting space for everyone to come together um, was a really, really great first step. Additionally, there's a lot of companies here like Walmart and Tyson and J.B. Hunt that Mm -hmm. employ a lot of UX designers as they move into that e-commerce or, you know, Whatever you want to call it, field, and they're starting to kind of become tech companies internally within the organizations, and so a lot of their designers started coming to our events as well. And it has the the design community has really grown here, um, and our membership base grew wildly thanks to um, a lot of the companies here that that provide jobs for them.
0: Mm, nice. I've always just been curious about that with small towns because mm-hmm. you know we hear so much from. Silicon Valley, San Francisco, LA, New York about all the great design things there, but there's tons of cities and communities between those extremes that you really just don't hear about what's going on in smaller towns. Mm-hmm. I re- I relate this story, you know, before we started recording about going to uh going to Raleigh-Durham a few years ago and noticing what a vibrant scene they had there, which I honestly would not have known unless I, I had went there. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that uh, the need and the drive was so strong mm-hmm. in Fayetteville to, you know, start your own chapter and really start putting things together.
1: Yeah. There's surprisingly, maybe not surprising, not surprisingly to me, but maybe to others, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of small design agencies here as well. Um, some do work for the larger companies and some don't, but there's a really, really big design scene here. And I say big, obviously per square mile, maybe, I don't know, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> for it to be a small area, um, it really is growing and more and more agencies are popping up, which is really, really great to see. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Now what, tell me some more about the
0: work you're doing with IGA. You mentioned this chapter, but you're also doing, uh, something else, right? With the task
1: force, DNI task force. Yeah. So I, um, My role has kind of evolved over time. I started out as a programming director and am now a VP of inclusion and initiatives for the chapter. And recently, within the last couple years, we had the AIGA DNI, the National DNI Task Force, um, had a meeting here in Arkansas um, where we invited all the members of the task force um, plus all of the DNI representatives from each of the chapters nationally to come to Northwest Arkansas. Um, where we just talked about the initiative as a whole and how chapters locally can impact their community and how we can diversify AIGA's membership because it's well known that AIGA is not very diverse. And so how can we help facilitate the work to make space for, you know, those who are not represented represented in our membership? Um, it was really, really cool to see. And I was, yeah, I was happy to have everyone come see Arkansas and make their own opinion um, instead of just, you know, reading what you learn in the news or whatever it might be. Uh, it was great to have them come and actually witness Arkansas for themselves.
0: What do you think is the single most important skill that a designer kind of needs these days? Like, it could be a technical skill, it could be a soft skill. What What do you think in your, in your experience? Mm,
1: the single most important skill that a designer should have, I think... Hmm, that's a good question. (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how to word it. I might stumble for a second. The ability to analyze problems, and I know that seems super vague and buzzwordy, but I say that because I think oftentimes designers like to jump to a solution or something they think they like or something um, that they've used before um, and they want to apply it to the same situation. But I think the ability to really dive into a problem, understand who's being impacted by it, what the impact is, and why it's it matters, why it's important, is highly valuable, and I think even more important than just designing a solution. Because if you just go out and throw something out there, it could just, you know, it couldn't be the right thing, or it could, you never know. But um, I think being able to understand. Um, either if it's a user or if it's just a a blanket problem that might affect a lot of different people. Those are important things to know.
0: And I I would say there's so many UX designers out there now, which is really why I asked this question, uh, whether it's through a formal program like what you're teaching or through something like general assembly or even, you know, self-taught courses. Mm -hmm. I feel like the number of UX designers over the years has steadily just been increasing yeah. and so i think uh that part that you mentioned there about really being able to like analyze problems mm-hmm. is something that is super uh super important for any designer to know mm-hmm. uh, whether it's putting it together your portfolio it's not just enough to have a bunch of pretty images you should have something which explains the choices behind you know why you designed it this way mm-hmm. uh, that is i think what helps set you apart from a lot of other people
1: mm-hmm Yeah. And I think being able to talk about your work is also valuable. So not only being able to show that you do good work, but, you know, talk about how you got there and your process. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something that I'm trying to get my students to do right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. When did
0: you realize that you kind of had to put yourself out there in this way in order to kind of start making things happen?
1: Yeah. So (laughs) this is kind of sad, but... I had a really, really tough client meeting when I was first starting out um, doing some UI work. And I couldn't articulate why I had made the decisions that I had made. Um, And I started crying. And it was so embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) um, because I just couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't talk about my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was because I was paralyzing myself and I was afraid of failure. um, And I was afraid to, put myself out there and just say like, this is why I did this. And I think it's the right thing. So instead, I just didn't say anything. And I didn't want to put myself in that position again. And so I learned from that. And the next time I had a client meeting, where I had to present my work, I was more confident in talking about my process and the method in which I got there. And why I did what I did. And it may not have been the right solution, but I was applauded for, I keep saying it, putting myself out there, but I was applauded for just being open to hearing feedback and for including people in that process. So it really does impact more people than just yourself. If you are kind of the face of that confidence and that opportunity.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What do you wish you really would have known about I guess, the design world when you first started?
1: If I'm being honest, I wish I would have known how not diverse it is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was a really hard thing to go through when I first started. I am So I'm in a sorority and I was just used to seeing a sea of different faces in college. And so when I went into the workforce, it was jarring. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was not (laughs) expecting that. So I definitely wish that um, I was, I don't know how you become more prepared for that but it would have just been nice to know I was kind of blinded by it and I want to say it's because I didn't have any professors of color um, when it came to my art career. Hmm.
0: Interesting and now here you are <laughs> as a professor of color you know te- I mean not teaching art but teaching UX mm-hmm. so uh, at least your students kind of have that to look up to as, yeah. a, as a possibility model.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's part of the reason that I agreed to do it because I was a little like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're asking me. You know, I feel like I don't have enough experience under my belt. But in reality, this experience that I have, I think, is just as valuable as someone who's been in the field for 20 years who might not experience the same type of workforce that I do. Um, mm-hmm. so I, um, I was willing to put myself out there so that that visibility is there for students who are, were like me and wanted to get into design, but maybe didn't see someone else who looked like them.
0: Mm. Who are some of your, your influences? Like what, what drives you to continue with this work?
1: Um, I would say, so someone else asked me this question recently and funny enough, I said you,
0: <laughs> me, Oh, <laughs> yes.
1: um, and yeah, I think that, so surprise, this is the Mari show now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) You were one of my um, influences because you have put yourself out there in so many different avenues and have started a lot of different projects that um, big or small impacted a lot of people. And I think that's important work. So definitely you. And then uh, my professor who sparked something at me as far as like social impact and social, I guess, justice go Marty Maxwell lane. Um, she's a big influence of mine. She does a lot of community work in the area and now she is on the national board of directors for AIGA. Nice. So again, just people who are not afraid to just get out there and do stuff. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, first of all, I'm very flattered <laughs> for, you to, for you to say that I, I, I'm i a little taken back by that. But it's interesting because, I mean, the the one good thing that I will say about like technology that has really helped with making projects like these is that it's helped to democratize ideas. So anyone can have an idea and that's, you know, that's great. But it's just about what you're able to do with it. And, um, oh my God, who did I speak to recently? I believe I was, I was speaking to Adi Malenciano recently and she said something that really clicked with me about how at first when it was, when she was trying to learn how to code, it was very difficult for her. But then once she got past the learning curve, she realized that you were just like putting pieces together. Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, when it's come to making projects, I'll know what it is I want to make and it helps me to kind of break it down into those components to know like, oh, I'm, these are the pieces that I need in order to do the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, uh, the recent anthology that I just published with Envision recognized mm-hmm. that was something where, well, one, we received the grant from Envision, which was great. And I was like, okay, this is cool. But then it came down to, well, how do I sort of put all this together? Like, yes, I want a submission process. So I got to put a website together. I, I use the service called Persona, which is from, uh, from the folks at Cargo Collective. Mm-hmm. It's really great. Really great for making little, really small, but artfully designed websites. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to like do a lot of code. It's almost like Squarespace in a way, but so uh, it's a little bit cooler, I think. But, <laughs> um, I knew I had to put together this website. So I put it together and then I knew I had to have these little rules and things like that. I would say everything for recognized came together in about three or four hours. Mm-hmm. And that was really just a sense of like putting the pieces together because I knew that you know one part of the the project I wouldn't be able to do until I was able to get the website up because once I have the website up, then I can market. Okay, we're going to start taking submissions. Set up a really quick Google form. Boom, submissions done. Submissions come in, then I know okay, I have to work with an editor. I work with the editor with Envision. We're going back and forth on choosing the pieces. Mm -hmm. It's done, and so. I mean, even the people from Envision will tell you this. Like we, I had everything regimented out in like two week blocks from March 1st to September 30th, where I was like, this is how it's going to go. We're going to publish by this date. It's ample time. We can do this and it got done and it was great. Yeah. And so now when I think next year, like, Oh, I want to do this again. It's even easier to start from because I've already kind of put those little blocks together. Yeah. And like the learning curve is much simpler. Now it's just, okay, when do I start and what is the theme going to be? Yeah. And then I can just like put it out there in that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You've set that foundation and it's easier to keep going from there. Yeah. Absolutely. Now we have,
0: a, yeah, we have a question here. This is from uh, a mutual friend of ours, mm-hmm. Regine, who uh, has also been a, a guest on the show. Uh, she brings up the fact that you're a musician. Yes. Uh, so she wanted me to ask you uh, if the music that you make or create has an impact on your designs.
1: Um, <laughs> that's funny. So shameless plug, I'm in a band called The Honey Collective. It's a jazz, um, kind of indie jazz band. It's really good. Nice. I would say that, so growing up, jazz has always had an influence on me just because I grew up singing jazz and musical theater. And I think show posters were always something that I was exposed to. And so... My, my default, um, and even when I started doing UI, my default was just to make it look like a show poster or like a gig poster in some way.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: <laughs> um, and like even in school now, and if I think back on my work, I'm like, oh, that does look a lot like like I think of Paula Sher's um, work that she did for um, my mind. I'm blanking. But what's the theater? Um, anyway,
0: Lincoln Theater, I
1: think in New York.
0: The jazz, the jazz theater. The,
1: uh, anywho. The Kennedy Center. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so just like uh, jazz, poster, music, influence, work. Um, so that's interesting. I don't know if the music that I make inspires my work now, but freelance wise, if I'm doing something just for fun or if there's like a local exhibition or something, I think it definitely has an influence on like my print work.
0: That's so interesting that, uh, it's like gig posters and stuff. I was, I think I saw this in an interview or I read this somewhere or something about how like older designers, well, I won't say older, but we'll say designers that have like gotten their start maybe in the 2000s, like early to mid 2000s. A lot of the things that they were pulling from for inspiration were Things like CD covers and album mm-hmm. covers and gig posters and things like that, because they were trying to replicate something on the web that they saw in print. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, oh, you know what? I heard this on a podcast. Now I'm thinking about it. Duh, yeah. I heard it on <laughs> <laughs> I heard it on uh, the Wireframe podcast from Gimlet and Adobe. But modern designers, we'll say like product designers from the 2010s mm-hmm. to now, for example, they are inspired by other websites. And so what ends up happening is that a lot of websites look the same in terms of structure oh. because the inspiration is another website that pulled from that structure. So like, you know how you'll go to a lot of websites and you see what hero image, uh-huh. uh, big headline. Three column, you know, then a big parallax slider or something like that. Like you, it all yeah. tends to end up looking the same. You can just sort of slot the content in and out and there's nothing that's really super, super unique about it. Uh-huh. And, uh, that really got me to thinking because when I started designing, certainly, and this was, <laughs> this was back in the, in ye olden days of <laughs> table based web design, a lot of that was built off print design. We would design mm-hmm. something in, um, in like dream no we would design something in photoshop and then we would slice we would make slices
1: yeah because
0: photoshop could (laughs) photoshop could export an image that you've sliced it could export it with the html so photoshop in a way could make websites by itself this is i mean dreamweaver was around but i i think this was like a i don't know way to do like conceptual sort of stuff so you had a lot of people that would make these um really splashy looking like print design things but then it's all like chopped up into tables and cells (laughs) and stuff like that so when you go to the page it all loads like in a weird way yeah and then you got like one little section in the middle that may has text in there but when I think about what the design looked like of things during that time it was a lot more innovative and out there because the web was like this open canvas that you could Really, like do what you wanted to do with it. I mean, yeah. I mean now I mean, now it's it's the same way, but I find a lot of sites tend to end up looking very much the same, but
1: yeah, and that's interesting because I feel like people before there were these kind of standard looking websites, the way that people use websites was a lot different too. I think that because design started looking similar, the behavior and reaction to that is similar as well. So we talk about like standard user behavior, but if you, I wonder if that would be different if we drew inspiration from other things than just websites that looked the same,
0: you know? I I think so. I really think so. Yeah. Wow. So I grew up with jazz and everything. I grew up with jazz too. I played in jazz band in high school.
1: Nice.
0: Uh, I played in my, well, it was the local community college had a jazz band and I had started out God this was another what was this in the, this might have been the same interview I mentioned before with Audi where uh I mentioned that I learned how to play music from video games.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Like I was really inspired by uh we had gotten a Super Nintendo and I was inspired by the game Final Fantasy 2. Oh well, the Final music Fantasy is beautiful II.
1: from that
0: game. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my, okay, I'll give you shout out. But yeah, Final Fantasy 2 in the US, Final Fantasy 4 in Japan, but I I mean, I love the characters and, and, you know, got into the story, but the music was just so good. And I was like, what is this music and why is it making me feel things? <laughs> and I had a little like, I don't know, I got like this little tape recorder thing I got from Family Dollar or something. And I would like hold it up to the TV while it's recording. And then take the song and go to my little like, you know, Casio 32 key keyboard <laughs> and like try to write out the music for it. Like, that's how I learned how to play music. And my mom saw that and was like, oh, you should like, you know, have you learn an instrument or something. She wanted me to play. I think she wanted me to learn how to play piano, but I just never got the the coordination yeah. for it. Um, And the instrument I ended up settling on, well, not settling, but <laughs> the instrument I ended up learning was the trombone. And I played that like... All through middle school, all through high school, all through college, played it out of college, like in a couple of like pickup bands and stuff around the city. Um, I haven't picked up a trombone in years. So I, I, I know it's like riding a bike. It's, it's sort of like you don't know, forget it, but it's amazing how much, um, music has been an impact on my design. Cause one thing that I would do a lot when I was just trying to learn how to do Photoshop is like try to recreate album covers mm-hmm. and CD covers and, try to like make this weird effect or anything like that. It's, I don't know, music, I empathize a lot with uh, any musician that is also a designer. So yeah, props to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Do you have like a, a dream project or anything that you'd really love to work on one day?
1: Oh, a dream project. Um, yes. So I, for a while, I was really into researching wealth welfare and the actual demographic for welfare and who receives federal funding and why mm-hmm. um, and I've always been interested in getting some kind of grant to do a big exhibition um, like a bunch of posters on like it's not who you think it is uh-huh. and that's all I have right now but I've just had this idea festering in my head so maybe I'll report back in a couple of years and <laughs> something will have come of it but um, that's definitely a dream of mine is to inform the general public on actual like government regulation and behavior versus what we think we know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: What are you most excited about at the moment? Anything in particular?
1: Um, I am most excited about, Hmm. Like work related or just anything,
0: just anything,
1: anything in general. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, this is not related to design, but we just started a new D anD D campaign with my group of friends. Okay, and it's really good, so I'm excited to keep playing it. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, I'm actually really excited about the work that I'm doing with ad AdHoc. Uh, I am super new, so I'm just excited to settle in and kind of figure out my like niche, my niche, mm-hmm. um, and where i as a person will fit into the whole picture i'm still finding my way so that's something to look forward to
0: yeah now we're coming up on not just the end of the year but also the end of the decade Mm -hmm. i mean we'll be in in 2020 very Mm -hmm. very soon when you look at at the next five years Mm -hmm. what what's in store for you what do you want to be doing
1: in the next five years, um, I hope that I'll still be doing some sort of impactful work and creative problem solving. So maybe it's not UX, maybe it is, but I want to make sure that I can use my like design process and design thinking mindset in a way that will have real impact on real people. Um, I know that's mm-hmm. vague, but um, maybe it's in policy creation or... Um, policy change or whatever it might be but i'm definitely interested in maintaining my work um with just helping people for the sake of helping them
0: yeah i don't think that's a, a vague thing um I, like i mentioned earlier before about coming back from the uh from the black and design conference mm-hmm. that's a lot of what that whole conference is about like I know when I first went to it in 2015, I was trying to get people to go and they were like, Oh, but they're not going to be talking about Photoshop <laughs> or they're not going to be talking about sketch. And I'm like, it's black and design. Like, when is this ever going to mm-hmm. happen again? Let's just go and just see what it's like. And over the three, the three times that I have went because they have it every other year, I am consistently inspired and blown away by just how people are taking their design knowledge And applying it in so many different ways. Now, granted, the Harvard Graduate School mostly deals with like architecture, landscape, Mm -hmm. you know, design, stuff like that. More, more concrete, I would say applications of design than like UX Mm -hmm. or something like that. But when you see how people are just extrapolating some of the very like same skills that you're using, interviewing, Mm -hmm. researching, making decisions and stuff like that for much larger scale projects, it is it's fascinating. There's this, uh, woman. She gave the closing keynote, uh, Deanna Van Buren, and she's talking about how she used her design knowledge or how she uses her design knowledge to help out, uh, basically to stop the cycle of recidivism for incarceration. Wow. So, I mean, it, it manifests itself in a number of different ways, like mm-hmm. making modular housing for, um, people that are inside of the prisons or like, for halfway houses Mm -hmm. or things like that even seeing how they can repurpose structures in the community that once had like a a uh like an old jail or something Mm -hmm. like that and like repurposing it into a welding school or a peacemaking center so then something which in the community was maybe this blight is now like a source of of like restorative justice in a way. Yeah. It is so and the good thing about it is they, well, one, they stream all the the uh the things, but you can also uh-huh. go online and like watch past sessions. So like I'm able to go back and rewatch stuff and follow the work. Uh if you ever get a chance to go, like the yeah. next one's gonna be in 2021, which already all sounds right. like super far away, but it is it is such an inspiring conference just to see how people are using their work, using mm-hmm. their design skills in many varied ways and then just the networking because there's all kinds of people that are there there's students there's educators there's just a whole bunch of people there it's a really great time i i i recommend to everyone who i have on the show to go because it's just to me i feel like it's one of the few events that i feel affirmed as both a designer and a black person Mm -hmm. Um, and they make sure that your blackness is centered first yeah like it's called Black and Design. Yeah. It's not like the design black conference or whatever. Yeah. But uh <laughs> and there's 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 been other events that have popped up that are similar to that. Uh Afrotechtopia is one of them, Data for Black Lives, which also takes place in Cambridge, uh, where uh Black and Design does. There's Blacks in AI, there's the there's BitCon, which I think takes place in Minneapolis. Of course there's Afrotech, which a lot of people know about. So it's amazing that there's all these kind of events and spaces yeah. now that are not just about I think the practical applications, which is good, but also it's it's for inspiration and for fellowship. Like I like that those spaces are now being kind of carved out uh for us to fellowship.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Erica, yeah. just to you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online?
1: Well, I have Instagram and Twitter. My handle is the same everywhere. It's Erica C-L, um, A-R-I-C-K-A-C-L. I also have a Instagram where I practice the ukulele. If you care to watch me practice music pretty poorly, it's uh, it's called <laughs> practice today. And I have a website, which is also ericacl.com.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, Erica Lewis, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having uh, me. Well, yeah, and I just, I mean, I try to have people that come on at all different like levels of, of their career, um i've certainly had people before who i've asked on and they're like no i'm not oh this is so funny i was at black and design and there's this guy i've been trying to get on the show for years and he's like i'm not ready i'm like (laughs) you are teaching work at mit media lab he's like yeah but you know we're in trouble right now and i'm like yeah i get it but um i try to have people at all levels just to one show that there's people out there that are doing this just like you. Yeah. But also I think it's really good to be able to go back, you know, like when you're in the future, like go back and listen to like, who was that person mm-hmm. back then? And what was I working on? And do I still have those same like hopes and dreams and wishes yeah. for what I want to do? So uh, Hopefully, I think people really connect with this. I mean, you know, by all means, please share it with your students. But uh, but yeah, I think this was a really great episode. It was really great uh, getting a chance to talk with you. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thoughts of love are in your mind.
0: And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Erica Lewis and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Erica and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. And of course, thanks to both Facebook design and abstract Facebook design, of course, is a proud sponsor of revision path. And if you want to learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, then please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by abstract design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.